Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. We are still in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Am I on, Joseph? Am I good? Okay. Very good. 1 Corinthians 1, and I'm not 100% sure where we'll start or where we'll finish today, but uh, for the moment, let's go ahead and pick up in verse 21, and I'll read the text and then open with a prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are being, or to those who are the called, rather, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Lord, we thank you for this word before us today. We thank you for your holy, inspired word that as we look at the text today, we are not looking at a text of man. We are not looking at just mere words on a page, but we are hearing from You, the God of the living, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We hear You this morning in Your Holy Word. And we ask that today You would change us, mold us, shape us, cause us to be more like our Savior. Make us more faithful in this life as we consider the amazing, wonderful task of going into the world and preaching Christ crucified. What an amazing thought. God, give us boldness as Your people. Give us faith. Increase our faith. Give us strength and energy to serve You, to honor You, and truly to be faithful. Lord, I ask that this morning, though I am certainly a sinner, both by nature and by choice, that I would not get in the way of Your text this morning, but that Your Word would be clear to Your people, and that we would all grow together in love and grace and mercy, and in joy and peace and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a, <clears throat> there's a time that occurs... For all parents when they're raising their children, when children learn how to use a little three-letter word, the word why, the why phase begins. And if there's a, a mission that I have as a father, it's to get my children to ask why and also to get my children to stop asking why. <clears throat> we understand uh, as parents how frustrating it is for children to ask the question why in the wrong times. For instance, when they're given a command and instead of obeying, they ask why? <laughs> Wait a second, who's got the authority in this house? You know, that's, uh, that crosses my mind quite often these days. Parents have the authority. Parents have the privilege. Parents have the prerogative to issue commands to their children. And the children don't have the authority or the privilege or the prerogative to respond with 
Why? As though the parents have to meet the demands of the children before the children decide that it's good to obey or not. Well, in the world, humanity's relationship with God is pretty similar, isn't it? Oftentimes, we run into people as we share the word of the cross, as we proclaim the gospel, we run into people who would rather ask why than submit to the God to whom they must give an account. And what we're going to see in today's text is a pretty thorough explanation of what's going on in the world as we go out with the message that's been entrusted to us, the only word that can save. And I want us to look at verse 21 again. It says, For in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. So something you can notice right off the bat is the world's wisdom and they're vainly using their wisdom to access truth. That's a part of God's wisdom. It's within the realm of God's wisdom that the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. But we see also that God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Man cannot come to know God without God's intervention. God must intervene in their lives with His good news, with His gospel, for them to understand and believe. The world considers it foolishness this word of the cross, this gospel message. The world says it's foolishness. But verse 21 says, God is well pleased to change their minds. Their minds are changed in that they no longer consider it foolishness, but upon believing the gospel, being born again, they consider it the wisdom of God. God literally changes their minds. And as Christians... People whose minds have been changed by this all-powerful God, those of us who now consider the gospel to be wisdom and power, we are called to take the message out back into the world, the world in which we once lived. It is now our duty as ambassadors for Christ to take the message to the world. And what does the world do? The world scoffs at the message. And beyond that... The world will ask you to do their dance. The world is going to ask you to play their game. They're going to scoff at the cross and say, meet my demands. Look at verse 22. Paul jumps right into this. He says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. What are these signs that the Jews are seeking for? Well, it's a some sort of a miracle that's done that would attest to the authority of the preacher, the one proclaiming the message. They would hear that message and say, well, I want to see some sort of miracle that verifies that you have the authority to share such a thing or that this claim is true. And this happened in Jesus' earthly ministry several times. I want us all to turn there to the book of Matthew. Keep your finger here, but turn to Matthew chapter 12. The first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 12. The Jews would ask the Lord of the universe, the one who created all things, for some sort of a sign that would verify his message. And look at what Jesus says in response to them. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to start at verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. It says, Matthew 12, 38, Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, 
We want to see a sign from you. Verse 39, But he, Jesus, answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Turn just a couple pages over to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 4. Same book. Chapter 16, verse 4. Again, Jesus being asked to show a sign to these Jews. And what does He say in verse 4? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And He left them and went away. Both times, Jesus rejects their requests. They're coming to Him and what they're really doing is asking for some sort of empirical evidence. So you make this claim, Jesus. You make all these claims. You say you're the Son of God, the Son of Man. You say that you're the Savior of the world. Well, Jesus, we want to see a sign. Give us something that we can test, that we can see and hear and use our senses to verify that this is true. Jesus says that's evil. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And did you see what he did in both instances, both in Matthew 12 and in Matthew 16? Instead, he pointed them back to the Word of God. You want to see something that you can test? How about you read the Scriptures? The sign of Jonah. Wow. An amazing response from Jesus. And it says, you can stay in Matthew because we're going to go to the book of Mark in just a moment. It said in 1 Corinthians 1.22 that the Jews seek for signs and the Greeks search for wisdom. They demand wisdom. Well, what is wisdom as opposed to a sign? This wisdom that's being spoken of here is some sort of philosophical argument that would shame all the other philosophical arguments. That the Gentiles, the Greeks, would, instead of calling after some sort of sign, they would say, can you explain this to us in a way that would confound all of our philosophers? If you could provide for us the ultimate philosophy of life and reason, well then we'd believe. Just show us this great philosophy. We demand wisdom. Well, what they didn't understand is what 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, which we'll hear about next week, that wisdom is actually a person, Jesus Christ. Jesus became to us the very wisdom of God. And they were seeking after a philosophical formula. What can we take away from this? That the Jews would want signs and the Greeks would want wisdom. Well, let me put forth to you that there's the same presupposition underlying both of those demands. The demand for empirical evidence and the demand for a philosophical argument. Do you know what that presupposition is underneath both of those demands? The presupposition is that we have within ourselves the ability to decide what is true. That we have within ourselves the ability to discern all the things that are out there in the world and to come up with what is actually true. That man is actually the final word on what is true. Those who demand signs and those who demand wisdom think a lot of themselves. They think very highly of themselves. They think, if I would, were only be given enough evidence or just these things that I want, if I was given these things, then I would be able to believe. Because then I would be able to discern 
what is right and what is true. And I would happily submit to your gospel. Have you ever talked to anybody like this? Well, I would, I would believe in a heartbeat if God would only show Himself to be true. Is that so? Let's look in that book of Mark. Mark chapter 6. Again, during Jesus' earthly ministry. Look at what the people did when they received signs and they received wisdom. Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 1. It says, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles or signs as these performed by his hands. Is this, is, is not this, rather, the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. In Matthew's account of this same event, we see that it wasn't that he could do no miracle in the sense that he was restrained, that God was somehow limited, that he wanted to do miracles, and he just couldn't do it. But in Matthew's account, it's quite clear that he didn't do any miracles because he refused to do any more. You see, they, they even said it. He's got wisdom. He's performed signs. How is it that he can do it? And they took offense. Did the signs make them believe? Did the wisdom make them believe? No. We have to understand the depravity of man here. We have to recognize that sin has so infested the heart of every man that no number of signs and no amount of wisdom would ever be able to convince somebody otherwise. Because men love the darkness rather than the light. Men love their own sin more than they love God. And that's the issue. That's the issue. So as ambassadors for Christ, I want to encourage you to do something here. Do not play the world's games. Do not do the dance that they demand you to do. As you go out and proclaim Christ crucified and they call back and they want some evidence or they want some miracles or whatever it might be, don't play into their hand. But instead, preach Christ. They only have finite wisdom. That's all they have. Just like you and me. Finite, limited wisdom. And what's really happening as they're demanding these terms is it's really idolatry of the mind. They consider their minds to be the final arbiter of truth. They consider themselves to be gods in the sense that they can determine what is right and what is true and what is good instead of starting with God and His holy, precious Word. So I want to share with you a quote from Robert Gramacki. And let me tell you this. If you believe this one sentence, if you believe that what I'm about to quote to you is true, this will absolutely revolutionize your approach to evangelism. Have I built it up enough? Robert Gramacki says this, Finite, sinful men cannot dictate 
to an infinite, holy God what they want from God before they will believe. Finite, sinful men cannot dictate to an infinite, holy God what they want from God before they will believe. We don't do their dance. We don't play their game. We were once like them. And what changed us? Was it a convincing argument? No. Was it a miracle? Maybe that was an, there was a miraculous event in your life. Maybe God did something where He spared your life and it was amazing. But that's not the foundation for your salvation. The foundation is the work of Jesus Christ. So we don't do what the world calls us to do, but instead we humbly proclaim Christ. Look at verse 22 again with me in 1 Corinthians 1. It says, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. And then verse 23 starts with this word, but that means he's making a contrast. He doesn't jump into verse 23 and say, so that's what we give them. But instead, he says, but we preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified to Jews. It is a stumbling block and to Gentiles. It is foolishness. We preach Christ. And when it says preach here, what's in view is not a formal role like what I'm doing now. It's not a preacher in a church on a Sunday morning. But instead, it is a proclamation of what we consider to be the ultimate priority in all of life. A proclamation of a person. Jesus Christ. What is being said here is that the Gospel needs no defense. The Gospel doesn't need empirical evidence. The Gospel doesn't need this wisdom of man, these philosophical arguments. But the Gospel, all by itself, has well enough power to save a soul. The Gospel is what's spoken of in verse 25, where it says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness and the weakness that the world sees in the Gospel, that's stronger than men. That's wiser than men. The Gospel doesn't need a defense of worldly wisdom. So we don't give men what they want. We give men what they need. The Gospel. We don't listen to the world's demands. And I want you to bear in mind that it is absolutely true that what you win them with, you win them to. And one day, Perhaps the person you're trying to win over to the Gospel through evidence, through some sort of signs, perhaps one day that person determines, I have received enough evidence. And perhaps a couple of years later, when life's going poor, that person has received enough evidence to believe that God no longer exists. If you win people over with evidence, evidence is what's going to keep them in the faith rather than faith in Jesus. If you win people over with philosophical arguments, what's going to keep them interested? More and more philosophical arguments. And what happens on the day when they hear a better philosophical argument than what you can come up with? They're gone. We don't call men to trust signs. We don't call men to trust philosophy. We call men to trust Jesus. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We call them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this plays out in fascinating ways. Look at verse 24. Well, verse 23 again. 
We preach Christ crucified. And what is this to the Jews? It's a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. But, verse 24, to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. There are three groups presented here. Three groups that we find in verses 23 and 24. The first group is the lost Jews. The unsaved Jews are presented first. And it says of them that for them, the crucifixion of their Messiah is a stumbling block. A stumbling block. So they see the, or they hear the message of Jesus Christ crucified and they say, crucifixion. That's not a miracle. That's not good evidence for any of his claims. That's not a display of authority. That doesn't verify his authority. In fact, they say it's the, the opposite. It proves he was wrong. And yet what they don't understand because they haven't been born again is that Jesus Christ's crucifixion was a great miracle, a great sign. It is a great display of authority that the God against whom all sins have been committed has paid for those sins by atoning for them Himself. For those who are believers, we understand that the message of the cross, the Gospel, is God's power. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. It is the power of God. But for the Jews, it is a stumbling block. And we have to understand the mindset of the Jews who expected the Messiah to come in and from the get-go, He was going to be a conquering King. That was their expectation. And then to see their king on a cross with a sign on the top of his cross mocking him saying, King of the Jews, it's a stumbling block. You can't be a king if you've been crucified as a criminal. What display of authority is that? Gordon Fee, who wrote like the standard commentary for 1 Corinthians, he said that the term crucified Messiah to the Jews would be like the term fried ice. Not fried rice. <laughs> fried ice. You can't fry ice, right? Now, Wayne Bussian's told me a story before where he burnt water. I haven't verified that. But uh, you can't fry ice. You can't be a Messiah if you've been crucified. Those two things don't go together in their mind. Because the cross was a place for cursing. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. How could a king, God in flesh, the Messiah, how could He be cursed? It's a stumbling block for them. In their natural state, they cannot see it, can they? In their natural state, they can't come to, to grips, they can't come to terms that the Messiah would be crucified. Remember verse 21, the world, including lost Jews, the world through its wisdom cannot come to know God. It's a stumbling block. The second group of people that's presented is lost Gentiles. That's us. The lost Gentiles. And they consider the cross to be foolishness. Foolishness. They look at the cross and they say, for that to be the most honorable person, the wisest person on a cross, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. What is so noble or dignified about the cross and the crucifixion. So they write it off as foolishness. However, for those of us who know Christ, it is the very wisdom of God. Jesus, 
dying in our place for our sins. You see, the way the lost Greeks would look at the cross, the way lost Gentiles look at the cross today, it's similar to a man on the street who knows nothing about carpentry going into a really nice house, like one of those in Alpine or Highland, one of those way up on the hill, that one of those where they spent six figures in trim alone, you know, one of those really nice houses, and walking around and saying, this is all wrong, this is all wrong. These doors should be neon. We need to have neon green and pink and orange on these doors. It looks awful in here. What do you think the builder would say? I can't repeat it here. <laughs> but that is similar to what's going on with these lost Gentiles that look at the cross, the beautiful design of God for salvation and saying foolishness. Who are you to come in and critique? And plus, your ideas are bad. You don't know. You don't have wisdom. The cross is the very wisdom of God. And the third group of people, you have lost Jews, lost Gentiles, and the third group, the called, it says in verse 24, to those who are the called. The ones who are given the ability to see God's power and God's wisdom in the Gospel. Because the world, these two groups of lost people, through their wisdom, they're not getting to God's truth. They're not getting to God's wisdom. They're not getting to the Gospel. But for the called, they are enabled now. They have received the power from God being born from above. They can see the power and wisdom of God in the Gospel. Because with a new birth, comes new eyes and new ears and new minds that understand. When God causes somebody to be born again to a living hope, that now their senses are no longer working against God, but instead their senses perceive the goodness of God. In our natural state, we were like those Jews worshiping all those false gods in the Old Testament. The golden calf and all of those. Their gods had eyes that couldn't see. Their gods had ears they couldn't hear. And don't you know that worshipers become like the things they worship? They became deaf and blind. And that's how we all are in our sinful state. But when God reaches into the tomb and finds a corpse and brings that corpse to life, then we can understand the beauty and power of the Gospel. You see, salvation is about our heart. It's not about our knowledge, all this human wisdom that we can gather together. It's not about primarily our brains and the facts, but it's about our hearts. Again, Robert Gramacki says, men are not saved by what they know, but by whom they believe. Our salvation has to do with our relationship to a person. Capital P, person, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And God is the one at work in a person, causing him or her to be saved. Look back at verse 18 with me again that we looked at last week. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. Being saved by whom? God Himself. It is the power of God. Remember, the perishing reject the message because they are perishing. 
They're not uh, rejecting the message and that causes them to perish. They're already, they're born into a state of rejecting the message because they are the perishing. But the saved embrace the message because they are the called. Verse 24 again, to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What makes the difference between the lost and the saved? It's the very calling of God. Because God calls certain individuals, they live. And I want us to see this in Romans again. I know we've gone here already once in this series, but keep your finger here. Back just a few pages. It's the book right before 1 Corinthians. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28. The calling of God makes all the difference in a person's understanding, in a person's eternal destiny. Romans 8, starting at verse 28. And we're going to read through verse 34. It says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. Verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The calling makes all the difference, doesn't it? The calling of God, the work of Jesus Christ, His continued work in interceding for us. How can we not but say God has shown us infinite grace? And this calling is effectual through the word of the cross. How does that calling, how is that brought to bear on a human soul? That God selects some people as the called. How is that brought to bear? It's the word of the cross that Paul keeps talking about in 1 Corinthians 1. How do you know who the called are? It's what they do with the word of the cross. If they embrace it, if they submit to it on the basis of God's authority alone, they see and they believe. All of our salvation, we owe to God. Even our understanding of the Gospel, we owe it to God. Because the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. That's where we were. We were lost without hope in the world. But God, because of the great love with which He loved us, being rich in mercy, He is the one who reached in. He is the one who changed our hearts and caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's the one who then has made us ambassadors for Him. That we would go out into the world not to play their games, not to do their dance, but, verse 23, to preach Christ crucified. 
The message that changed us is the message that can change the world around us. Do you believe it? I hope you believe it. It's the only thing that will change them. And boy, do they need to be changed. We need to be changed. And how much more does the lost, perishing, dying world need to be changed? The word of the cross. Remember, this has already happened to the Corinthians as we put ourselves in their place. They had been changed by the gospel. And that's why we see in verse 26, the next place Paul goes is, consider your calling. So he's taking the call of God out of the the realm of being just a theory, and he's saying, look, this is on your life. Now consider your calling. And we're going to dip our toe into these verses. I'm not going to finish the chapter today, but I want us to see where he's going here. It says, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty Not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Well, that's a little harsh, right? Consider your calling. Not many of you were cool. (laughs) Not many of you had it together. Not many of you were exemplary citizens. Consider your calling. Wow, Paul, a little little harsh there. Stepping on our toes. Paul is pointing the Corinthians to the state they were in when they came to faith. He's putting their minds back to when they first came to know Jesus as Lord. And he says, Not many of you. Notice he says, not many. He doesn't say all, or he doesn't say none, however you want to uh, translate that. It's rare for someone noble, someone wise, someone strong to become a Christian. But it was happening in the Corinthian church. Crispus and Gaius, Sosthenes, these names that we studied in the first message. They came to know the Lord, but he says, not many of you were that way. Not many of you were wise, mighty, or noble. These are the very attributes that the Corinthians were valuing in the world. The Corinthians really looked up to people who appeared to be mighty and wise and noble. And he says, wait a second. Not many of you were that way. And I read all the way to verse 29 because I want you to see where he's going. Look at verse 29 again. The whole point of this argument is that so that no man may boast before God. The inspired apostle here is attacking fleshly boasting. The whole point of this, of this, uh, these questions and um, these descriptions of who they were when they were first called, the whole point is to get them to realize there is nothing in and of themselves, there's nothing in the world that should be the basis for their pride and boasting. It's similar to, and perhaps you've seen this, It's similar to a couple of really big guys. And when I say really big, I mean width-wise, not height-wise, okay? A couple of wide guys who have squeezed into sports jerseys, like maybe basketball jerseys or something. And then they're barking at each other about uh, who's better and who's the the most athletic and what team is is best. And Paul's walking into the room and saying, wait a second, um, that's a triple XL and you barely got that on. 
uh, there is no way that you should be boasting about anything athletic. <laughs> God has placed you on His team. Quit chasing after these other teams. These For the Greeks, it was philosophy. Quit chasing after these things, this worldly wisdom, these worldly values. But instead, find your boast in God alone. What God is doing through this letter by Paul is He's taking a wrecking ball to their idols. God's swinging the wrecking ball through and He's crushing all their reasons for pride and boasting. And they're being reminded that they were not excellent, amazing, majestic people when they were called by God. But instead, they were quite lowly. They were weak. They were dull. And God saved them. So what is God up to in all of this? What is God up to in the world as He's saving the weak and dull and foolish, the base things of the world? Well, the first thing He's up to, the overarching thing that He's doing in everything is glorifying Himself. That's the answer every time, right? Why is God doing this? The answer is always to glorify Himself. The rest is just details, just fine print. God is glorifying Himself. And we see here that He's doing so by shaming the world. By removing boasting so that they can only trust in Him. God is shaming the world and removing their boast that He is the only one left standing. Because God alone is all-knowing and all-wise, isn't He? He is the only one who not only knows all things, like all facts that exist in the history of the universe, He knows them all. He's also all wise. He is perfect in His wisdom. He's the only one. There can be no other grounds for boasting. I want to read to you a passage that was certainly in the Apostle's mind as he wrote this letter. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. We have no basis for boasting in the world. Our basis for joy, confidence, happiness, peace, it's God Himself. God Himself. The one who exercises loving kindness, which is hesed in Hebrew. Maybe you've heard that term. His hesed love. His justice and His righteousness. That is our boast. And as we understand the Gospel, as those who are being saved, as we come to understand the Gospel, we speak now Gospel wisdom. We no longer speak the world's wisdom. last passage I want you to see, it's right here in this book, chapter 2, starting at verse 4. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4. As we come to know the wisdom of God, that then is what we speak no longer speaking the world's terms, but speaking God's message. Look at verse 4. Paul says, My message and my 
preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. That is what we speak. The hidden wisdom of God that was revealed not through uh, some personal revelation, not through some, uh, you know, one miraculous event per person who's ever lived, but this wisdom that was hidden was revealed in a person, Jesus Christ. This wisdom that was hidden was brought forth in the person and work of Jesus, and it's been preserved for us in God's holy text. That as we read the Bible and we read the accounts of Jesus' life and we read the exhortations from the apostles, we understand that Jesus is the one from whom all wisdom flows. And now, as Christians, we speak that wisdom. We speak heavenese. You guys speak heavenese? We boast in God alone, the true wisdom of God. So what is God doing? How is He glorifying Himself according to this passage today? Well, the first thing He does to glorify Himself, He saves us apart from our finite wisdom. He saves us apart from our finite wisdom. And secondly, He takes away our boast that all our boasts might be Him and Him alone. Through the Gospel, we understand there is no power in nature and there is no merit in man. All of our value, all of our wisdom, all the riches of the glory of God are found in Jesus Christ. And we appeal to Him and Him alone. The work of Christ is true power and true merit. That is good news. That is the Gospel. And as Christians, those who are the called... We are now called to call others. And I'll close with this quote from MacArthur. The only message a Christian has to tell is the message of the cross. Of God the Son becoming man, of His dying to pay the penalty for our sins, and of His being raised from the dead in order to raise us to life. Father, we thank You for that Gospel message, that Jesus paid it all, that He rose from the dead, that He is our King. He is the one who brought us into this church as He is building it. We thank You for the person and work of Jesus. And we ask that as we live our lives this week, that we would take this message with us, the message of 1 Corinthians 1, that we wouldn't seek to give the world what they want, but instead we would only give them what they need, the Word of the cross. Cause us to be faithful. Cause us to honor You in all things that You might receive all glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.